Hey, I'm Ryan. I've managed products at innovative companies like Weebly and Verb, and now I run my own. Each episode, I talk with product managers at some of the most successful companies in the world to learn how they do customer research, gather insights, and make the product decisions for both their customers and company. You'll get real world advice on how to ship products people want and love. Now let's get into people-driven products. Welcome, Matt. Thanks so much for joining us today. You have a great perspective around keeping product decisions user-centric. So we're very excited to hear what you have to share with us. Can you get us started by telling us a little bit about what led you to Atlassian and what you do there? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, it's so good to be here. I've always wanted to continue to give back to the product community and, and folks interested in products. So yeah, totally happy to, to be here. I've been doing product management for just over five years now. And originally from Canada, after university, pretty much, I I spent time working at a couple companies there, ranging from credit unions to telecommunications, pretty large multi you know multinational companies. And essentially, what happened was I was looking for a change in scenery, and I wanted to get a change in pace. I'd been born and raised in Canada, and so. I was looking around the world and basically and looking at, you know, what are the opportunities out there? And Australia had always been top of my list. And so I actually moved to Australia without any sort of inclination of whether or not I would work for Alassian or really if Alassian would even take me in. And lo and behold, I kind of went through the motions. Alassian is based in Sydney, Australia. We do have offices everywhere, but we are set up here because our founders are Australian. And so yeah, I, I went through the motions, applied. They, they liked what I had to say and my experience and the rest is pretty much history. Awesome. Super exciting. And how's Australia been so far? I love it. Um, if anyone's, I often tell people who have never been here, uh, especially friends back home, I say it's the hot equivalent of Canada or it's the hotter version of Canada <laughs> where if Canada is on one spectrum of you know being super cold and icy, it's like the opposite where it's usually quite sunny and weather-wise it's above like 30 degrees Celsius. Awesome. Well, today I'd love to just start by jumping right into a launch that you worked on and launched about a year ago. And it was really that Jira Cloud UI navigation redesign. And so take me back to the beginning, where was really the genesis for that feature development process? And where did that really start from? That's a really interesting project. So I've been at Alassian for about three years now. And when I joined, we were actually just in the midst of rolling out the previous navigation. And so internally, we would call it nav version two or V2. And so I had been tasked with this project of, hey, we've got roughly 20% of our customers left. We got to roll this thing out. We have this kind of time frame to do it. So let's go ahead and do it. And at the time, it was interesting because I, I've always been um, a user of Alassian's products during Confluence and previous companies. And so it was quite interesting and meta for me to see the other side of it, you know, be on the tail, the receiving end of NAV version two. And so what happened was in those first six months that I was like onboarding, but also trying to wrap up the existing project, I dug in on, into a lot of customer feedback. Like that was like the first source of truth for me to get an understanding of what people were saying, what were the pain points, what were the delighters of it, really to understand the why behind why we did the thing. And actually through that process of like six months of digging in, uh, might've been even more now, I read through uh, 
probably 5,000 pieces of feedback line by line. You know, yeah, there's like sentiment analysis tools and word text mining and stuff, but there's nothing like just reading feedback and like going through it verbatim to really kind of build a sense of like customer empathy and really get a sense of like what's going on. So after doing that and, you know, lo and behold, we actually just finished rolling the thing out. I learned a lot about what was working well and what wasn't working so well. And, and from there, it was a bit of a, a spicy take, but I went to, to my team and our leadership and I said, look, we completed this. It's great, but we still have a lot of opportunity here. There's a lot of things we haven't done. You know, the whole problem space is really challenging because when we think about ease of use and also the way people navigate products, there's not really a one size fits all. And everybody has different habits built up over time. And for a product like Jira, you can imagine so many different use cases and horizontals that it serves. It became one of these things where it was like, we're not done yet, but what else do we do? And the spicy thing here was really, hey, I, I actually think we need to redo this again. And at the time, it was like, there's some laughter in the room and kind of just like, hey, well, you know, like, is this really the right thing for us to do? From there, it was pretty much this sort of gradual building up the advocacy and, and doing what a lot of a lot of what I you know preach in one of the, the blogs that I wrote recently about influencing, right? Because here I was, new starter, tons of really smart, experienced, well-versed people in the room who had just completed this massive rollout of this new UI. And new guy coming in here was basically saying, hey, I, I don't know if this is the right thing. I, I think we might need to undo this in a way, essentially. That's kind of how it started and, and how I built some of that sort of drive or built up the momentum for us to, you know, lead to what we called Nav version three and what, you know, is known as like the new navigation in Jira Cloud now, which is, I guess, not so new. <laughs> And you can never argue with customer insights because that's ultimately who we're serving. And so I love 5,000 pieces of feedback. So you really came armed and knew exactly what you were talking about. I assume that made your influence a little bit easier to get folks to maybe think that maybe we should do a V3. I would say it was the catalyst that really got people at least thinking about, hey, maybe there is a need for us to revisit this. Because after going through those 5,000 pieces of feedback, what happened was I actually reached out and started doing some customer interviews. Alassian has a, a very obsessed, customer-obsessed culture where one of our values is um, don't F the customer. And so really, the thing that we preach and we prioritize is our customer needs. And so after going through the 5,000 pieces of feedback, I found folks who were wanting to talk to me and kind of give me more info. And, you know, with their consent, I actually recorded some of these. And there's just, it's like you said, like you can battle with opinions, you can battle with like data and, you know, what people are doing. But if a customer verbatim says something, it, it just gets people's ears perked up. And then you, it just makes all the future sort of discussions and debates so much easier because it's not me saying we need to do this for any selfish reason. It's literally the customer that's saying, hey, this sucks or, you know, this is really painful. We need to fix this part of it. So yeah, the pieces of feedback, but then complemented with real stories like recorded from customers really kind of made people's heads turn a little bit. And then from there, you know, we do all the, the typical sort of ideation and breaking down the problem space a bit more, looking at data and going from there. Got it. And so it sounds like the data that you collected, these 5,000 pieces of 
feedback, this was fairly recent for V2. And and how recent was it? Because I know in some cases, you know, Facebook launched the newsfeed and there was an uproar for several months. And so you don't always want to react too strongly too soon. So help me understand what that looked like of maybe a large change was made, but you saw some compelling evidence that maybe we need to take another pass at this. You make a good point. There's always a bit of that sort of change aversion. And for the longest time, our, our team thought it was change aversion. I think, like I mentioned, when I joined, we had about 20% of our customers still waiting or still on the old one. And so that meant we already had a majority, The eighty, if you look at the 80-20 rule, we had 80% of our customers already on the new one. And yet we were still getting these signals, um, both in qualitative and quantitative form, that it wasn't working the way we initially thought it would. And so on the quantitative side of things, we looked at things like opt-in rates, usage of like core features or core jobs to be done, if you will, in the product, and then seeing whether or not those plateaued or if they were staying stable. That combined with all the qualitative stuff was like the signal was still was still pretty strong pretty much by the majority of the rollout. And so we kept thinking it was change inversion. And I have to say for a project like this, it wasn't just looking at the feedback, getting interviews, getting recordings, and then people changed their mind. Even from there, I think we spent, I can't remember exactly, but up to six months from there planning and thinking through, okay, what are the actual things we could do in lieu of undoing this, this redesign or redoing or doing yet another redesign? Because there are all these like small little um, bite-sized pieces that maybe we could chew off and just like build some extra capabilities to meet those needs. And then that way it would address it. And we did those. We definitely tried them. We experimented. We ran A-B tests, all that sort of stuff. And we were still seeing feedback coming in and it wasn't really going down in any significant manner. And so then from there, it just pretty much became a, okay, we, we, need, to, <laughs> we need to think about a, another redesign and make that more serious. And for that second version, that in that process, were there any steps that were skipped or do you think that maybe the user research was too light? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I wasn't part of the initial sort of conceptual thinking and the planning. So I can't say with a lot of certainty, you know, what research was done and what wasn't. I know the team prototyped things. They put things in front of customers. They tested with a fairly representative sample from both our products. We actually rolled that new navigation UI to not just Jira, but also Confluence and Bitbucket at the same time. And so it was one of the biggest sort of UI changes in quite some time across three of our key products. And so you can imagine our customers don't... Very few of our customers use just one of our products. And so what you're getting is no pun intended, a confluence of customers using both Jira and Confluence and maybe Bitbucket, and then experiencing that same redesign across all three products. And so there was a lot of testing needed to be done so that you know we would meet the needs of the specific needs of the various products. Totally understand. And what's your process for collecting feedback for the second version that really informed the need to do a third version? The process was pretty simple. Like I don't think... We have a lot of tooling and, and services that we use. Like I mentioned, we, we do text mining, we do sentiment analysis, all the stuff that you know AI can power and help you with or machine learning. But I think there's nothing like just getting to the feedback 
reading it. It doesn't have to be 5,000 like I, like I did. I think it was just part of my process. But I think just getting in front of the feedback in the most direct way possible. And what I mean by that is like you with your eyes reading it and not hearing it through another channel, such as like a support team or a sales team or a marketing team or another product team. Just put yourself in the shoes of the customer reading that. And from there, what you'll be pleasantly surprised by, or what I was pleasantly surprised by, is if you take the time and reach out to these people who left the feedback, the majority of them really want to speak to you about it. You know, people don't just leave feedback just to rant. I mean, there are folks who do that, don't get me wrong, but the majority of our customers are so engaged with our products and have such a high bar for what we do that they're more than willing to kind of give you 30 minutes of their day to, to go deeper and to, you know, even share their screen and share, you know, how they're using the product. And that really, you know, opened up my eyes. And I have to say, like, it's one thing for the for a product person or a product manager to, to do that. But the next level is to start doing that with your whole team, right? It's it's once you have the the folks who are going to be building the thing, designing the thing, marketing the thing, supporting it on the front lines. If they're all in the room at the same time and listening to this customer speak about why this thing isn't working, all the light bulbs go off and everything clicks. And then from there, it's like people start moving at you know at a pace that you're kind of like you only read about in books and stuff like that. You're like, oh, this is this is that nirvana that you know what it means to be customer obsessed and having the right folks in the room seeing it. All these ideas are coming, and it was bliss when we got there. It was difficult to get there. <laughs> Don't get me wrong; it wasn't an overnight thing. But that's my process. Just like get straight to the heart of the feedback, be as direct as possible, and then engage your team. Bring your team along for the ride. At UserLeap, as you know, we're a microsurvey platform and we have built all of our in-house AI. And I totally agree that we find the power of the AI and the sentiment, the text analysis and the clustering so that teams can quickly understand where to dig in. And so, you know, maybe instead of the 5,000 pieces, you know, the 300 pieces that you do want to read and, and the rest that maybe, you know, less interesting perhaps, or things that are a little bit less relevant. And so, I totally agree. And we and that's the reason why we make it really easy within UserLeap where you can see the theme of interest, drill in, read the 50, read the 100, read the 500 responses within a particular theme, and then reach out to those people. And so you can reach out you know, to that individual who left that really juicy piece of fleet feedback. You just need to get that, you know, get her on the phone or get him on the phone and ask those really tough questions to see, you know, what was working or not working about her experience. And so really great to see that, you know, you also think about looking through that data yourself, that raw data and seeing what users have to say. And moving forward into the third version into that redesign, where would you say the breakthroughs were when you did pull those users into the redesign? And which users did you go and really reach out to to get them included? Were those users that were not happy or maybe users who didn't switch over or maybe users who, you know, did switch over. Help me kind of understand what that process looked like. Yeah. So when it came to getting feedback and, and co-creating that, that version three with our customers, obviously there was a lot of work that we did first to kind of get it to a point where we could show with customers and it was still aligned with our strategic sort of priorities internally. But from there, once we, we decided, hey, we need some customer input, we need, we need a usability test this thing, we need validation, we actually selected, we went through a couple rounds. We, we were lucky enough to have a really talented researcher who was on this project with us. So she had a methodology that we kind of, she drove and we, we contributed to. But 
we spoke to a can't remember if it was like upwards of 12 to 20 different customers of, of varying sort of demographics, but also use cases where some of them like the old one, like you said, some of them like the version one, some of them like version two. And then we have this like this batch of people who are just kind of indifferent. We just picked them out of a hat and said, hey, we just want to make sure that you're an admin or you're an end user and different sort of personas from there. And obviously from like a industry perspective and where they work, we were kind of flexible and made sure we had a a few some folks that would be from like a small, you know, startup from one to ten people, or you know, large companies of like a thousand plus users, that sort of thing. So we had a very like big spectrum just to cover our bases. Obviously, we didn't have time to survey hundreds of or speak to hundreds of them. But I think usually the rule of thumb is like if you speak to, you know, I think it was like a minimum of five or something like that. If the if I'm not mistaken, the Nielsen Norman group does a ton of great stuff here. But like you speak to a minimum of five, you start to get like patterns and, and see the, the patterns of what works and what doesn't. And so when we had a working prototype, it wasn't in code or anything. It was literally just um, like a, a Figma prototype, I think. And essentially we put that in front of people, got them to kind of like play around with it, see, is this working? Is it not? From there, we took that initial round of feedback. The team was clever enough. We came up with a Chrome extension believe it or not, that we could um, hack together and basically have customers opt into that. And so there was no disruption for a, you know, a whole a customer and all their users. It was like on a per user basis. And so what that means is like, you could just you know, install this Chrome extension, turn it on, have a feel, see what it's like, give us feedback directly. And we did that at a much larger scale. So you know, instead of walking through you know, this, the 12 to 20 people in a one hour moderated testing session, we kind of expanded the, the reach of that and said, hey, this is now publicly available. If you want to try it out and give us some feedback, here's how to do it. And from there, we got like hundreds of hundreds of like responses. And it was rinse and repeat in sort of that cycle of like, now let's look into that feedback and let's do follow-ups with those people. And so it was this blend of like, I don't know, we usually categorize user research into like moderated sessions or unmoderated. So we had both. Right? We started with the moderator to go deep, find out what the, the pain points were, get us to like a, a version where we could then build cheaply. In our case, it was a Chrome extension. And then from there, we started you know, um, working towards the final thing. It was super interesting to hear your process. And I'm sure you know, you're talking to different users from different perspectives, some like V1, some like V2, you're talking to admins who are maybe you know, apathetic, you know, there's no preference there. When you hear differing perspectives, how do you resolve that when you're looking to make progress and move forward with a decision? I think having it all out on the table is really good to start with. And so what we did to really get a full range of the feedback is um, the researcher we were working with, her name's Becky. Basically, she had this, uh, I, I wish I could show visuals in, in podcast form, but like she had this whiteboard that had all these snippets of feedback from all the different personas. And we started in a way like mind mapping all the different pieces of feedback, where they were coming from, who gave that feedback. And from there, you started to get almost like a, like a word map in a way, or like a heat map, I should say, of like who is impacted by what, what aspects do they like of what. And from there, you can, it was still tough, right? Because at the end of the day, we couldn't please everyone. So, so I'll, I'll go ahead and say that, that 
it's not like the new experience has met the needs of everybody, but in in the spirit of moving efficiently and also catering to the needs of the majority and then making sure we leave room on the table to continue to iterate, we said, okay, we're going to address these use cases because again, we had internal strategic sort of priorities as well, right? And so we had to balance the needs of that plus like the needs of the greater population while still keeping in mind the small minority who really were quite vocal about certain things not being there. We had alternatives or we had workarounds that wouldn't be in an ideal world with all the time and energy and resources. Yeah, we could probably do everything. You know, like folks were asking us, hey, why don't you just make this uh, navigation completely customizable to us and we can do whatever the heck we want with it and make it drag and drop. And if I want this thing there, I'm going to put it there like a bookmark bar pretty much, right? And in theory, that sounds great, right? Like, why not? Like, that's that's awesome. Then we don't have to worry about, you know, not pleasing customer A while this, and customer B. People and just choose what they want. Choose your own adventure. But the reality of it, and I think that's something that all product people will face is like there's trade-offs there's maintenance costs, there's things that you have to give up to do those things. And so it just wasn't realistic for us. And it's a hard call. It's definitely, I wish I could say it was a science, but it's really still very much rooted in like product intuition and like gut feel, but being as informed as possible with that VOC. And again, we had quantitative data too, right? Like I think you mentioned at the top of the call, opt-ins and opt-outs. We looked at that as well, right? Just to see what people were, were generally doing. Because it's one thing for a customer to say, here's what I want. And it's another for them to actually show you through their actions, like, hey, I'm actually using this thing. Awesome. Yeah, and I definitely agree. And how did you know, V3, you're not going to have the same set of data that there might need to be a V4? That was the biggest, biggest hesitation, right? Like for us to even get executive or like senior leadership buy-in that this should be funded. We were really rigorous with our data this time around. I think if you look at V2, we had some, you know, opt-ins and opt-outs and sort of, you know, the qualitative feedback coming in and the volume, right? With tools like UserLeap or other things, I'm sure you could do a much easier job of like picking out the patterns, right? Like I wish I would have had that in the early days because then I wouldn't have to go through 5,000. And like you said, I can just see the, hey, there's like 500 of them that are talking about, I don't know, the ability to not be able to find this thing. So anyway, we we had a lot of data that we were using this time around. And so we came up with the opt-ins, the opt-outs, but also retention curves as well. We looked at, we were lucky enough to work with a, a data scientist who's, who's really wicked, but basically we had like this cohort analysis plus layered in with like a retention graph. And what we could see for various cohorts was like the retention of the new navigation, right? Or the V3. So basically of the people who chose to actually use it, how many of them were still using it after a certain period. And we, you know, we defined that period by looking at past data and stuff like that. And so what we were seeing is like a resounding 99% of our users were still in the new one once they got a feel for it. And so what that, that was a huge signal for us to go, hey, people actually like this more, we think, you know, that plus the qualitative research as well. And so our efforts then became more focused on how do we get people to take stock or notice of the new thing and then get them in? Because once they're in, they generally like it. And so it was that became the challenge kind of midway through the project was not so much validating that the new thing was better, but just getting people to notice the new thing. 
And so we had to change some of, you know, the priorities internally of, you know, what we would build and our messaging and that sort of stuff. But to make sure we didn't go into, get into a B4, we were super rigorous with our data, both qualitative and quantitative. I should also mention, we did a diary study. I don't know um, if folks are familiar with, a, with what a diary study is, but this was such a, a brilliant way to do really rich sort of insights about day-to-day usage. Because again, like when you're doing these one-hour sort of sessions with customers, there, there's a bit of the, I can't remember the phenomenon, but it's like when you know, notice you're being observed, you tend to behave differently, right? And so it's like, you know, even in a one-hour research session where we say, hey, be very honest and authentic with us and tell us ex- everything. There's still like people kind of like, oh, you know, like maybe I won't say certain things or I won't do something the way that I normally do it. And so we did a 10-day diary study, like a two-week two working week diary study where people were, you know, encouraged to basically log a diary sort of entry of like, Hey, today's so-and-so I used, I opened up Jira, I used um, the new nav and here's what I was doing. And here are the things that I stumbled upon or, Hey, yeah, it's actually working. And so we had this really rich 10 day sort of recap from 12 or so customers recapping how, how they're using it. And so when you use that, all the other, you know, opt-in and retention data that we had, it became a no-brainer for us, really. It was like, hey, this is actually better. Something else that, that comes to mind also is we had microsurveys as well throughout the process where you know we would periodically ask people, hey, are you finding it easier to find things? Or I can't remember the specific wording, but it was something along the lines of like, can you find things more easily with, with the experience today compared to what was in the past? And that was the signal too. Like we were seeing an increase or an uplift in those numbers in V4. <laughs> and I know larger companies like Google, Facebook, Atlassian have built out some microsurvey systems at the largest scale. And I was at Weebly wanting the same microsurvey infrastructure that Google and you know Atlassian had. And so that's actually was part of the genesis for UserLeap and building out this flexible system with lightweight SDKs where anyone can drop these in start collecting their own in-product microsurveys and getting insights from their users. And many, we actually have a template that sounds exactly like the question that you just had. And so it's a template, you can just kind of pick it out, you, a couple clicks, it can be up and running about, you know, do you, is it easier to find, you know, what you're looking for? And you can do A-B testing and see in version, you know, the new version, the usability score or the score to more easily find what you're looking for in that new UI and compare because I noticed in the blog post, you said 95% of users, early users, prefer the new version. Is that where that data came from or is that was that a different source? That's where the data initially came from. Yeah. We, we called it a, I think it was the findability survey. I don't think findability is actually a word. Maybe it is. But remember, like the, the navigation serves, like it's a means to an end. And that end was like to help you find things in the product. And so we didn't want, you know kind of vanity metrics, like, did people click on the navigation and did they do this? We, we looked at those, those were interesting, but it wasn't like success for us. So yeah, these micro surveys were so fundamental to how we kind of defined and measured that success. Um, and yeah, at the time we had to build it internally and kind of our own bespoke things, but yeah, I would have loved to, you know, actually it was funny because as we were planning and coming up with these signals and measures, I was like, surely there are things off the shelf that we can use here. Like, I can't imagine that this is a problem we only have. So yeah, that's great. We are bringing microsurveys to the masses. <laughs> that's, that's basically our vision here. 
uh, usually. And so moving into, let's take another look at something maybe more recently that you've been working on. And so thinking around, I know lately it's been around feature iteration and there's also some migration work that you're doing. Help me understand how user insights also plays an impact and not only maybe a larger redesign, but maybe more of that day-to-day iteration and customer love. Recently, I've been working on um, a host of problems related to, to change management. And so when we say change management, it's not, you know, the management consultant thinking of like change management, but it's like really rooted in this problem that are what we're seeing customers have in our cloud products is the inability to manage all the, the constant changes that are happening in Jira and Confluence. And so it's like, you wake up, you log in, the last thing you want to see is like, hey, this thing moved around or that thing moved around and this thing's new. And it's just, it comes at a, a barrage that's, you know, unexpected for folks in our, in our cloud compared to, you know, those who may be more used to quarterly or annually sort of release cycles, like things that you would typically get with on-premise software. And so that's the kind of area I'm working in is how do we help our customers manage the rate of change in our cloud products? And so from there, we've actually come up with a couple of different solutions to it. Um, Things like cloud sandboxes where people can test things in an isolated fashion. And then things like what we're calling release tracks where customers can dictate, you know, the frequency in which they receive changes. So kind of giving you a bit of the best of both worlds where you get that stability that you want, but also you still get all all the, the new innovation, the bug fixes, all the improvements we're making constantly. And so when we think about like more smaller projects and like rapid iteration, we always, always, always start with a customer. We always start with a customer, what they need, what their pain points are. We actually do quite a bit of work um, coming up with journey maps. Journey maps are a great, great way for us to, to get teams on board, not just like the immediate or immediate teams who are building these experiences, but also cross-functional teams that are impacted by or folks we have to work with. And so having like this journey map as an artifact is like a starting point oftentimes. And that journey map is rooted in user and user insights. Those user insights can come from customers directly or, you know, um, indirectly through a sales or support channel. And so with the work that we've been doing recently, we came up with a journey map. We looked at all the different pain points along. What does it take for this particular, in our cases, like an enterprise customer, what does it take for an enterprise customer to be okay with the rate of change and all the different steps? And we would then take, you know, things like a, a cloud sandbox experience and pick out, okay, where does that fit in this prop in this journey? And what are the opportunities that we have? And it's this rapid iteration of like, let's tweak some things. Let's show it to our teams internally. We're in a very fortunate position that we um, use our own products for a lot of things, right? So we, we kind of, to quote, we dog food everything. And so we can kind of get that first pass of like, hey, are things working here? And when we do that, we actually tap into um, our community quite quite a bit. Um, so Elastian has, I think it's over 2.6 million members signed up on our Elastian community. And so that's like a great place to kind of engage as a forum. It's people asking questions. It's people helping each other. So we kind of go there and we put things out there and, and get folks to give us input and tell us what they need, what the, what's missing. And so we're very fortunate that we have such a large member base that's so passionate and willing to give us that feedback. And from there, you know, it's a constant iteration. It's usability testing from there. And yeah, basically getting things in a shippable state so that we can do early access programs, which are really helpful for us because it's there's always a debate between 
how high fidelity should a prototype be versus the actual built thing, right? So we do that sort of that gamut of like sketches to high fidelity to build something scrappy, ship it to an early access group, get some feedback, and then go from there. Yeah, sounds very user-centered on the work that you do. And I do think too many product managers are actually too focused on the behavioral analytics data, and often it can lead them down the wrong path. And I imagine, you know, going back to the redesign for a second too, that when you're looking at the data, you might see perhaps more clicks. You know, Does that mean that someone is more likely to be finding what they're looking for, or is less clicks better? Or you, know, you might not actually know, you know by looking at the data. And so I imagine when you're thinking around the feature iteration now, you know, you could have some a hypothesis based on the analytics data, but you're not actually going to know what the users want, you know, wanting or what they're thinking or what's working or not working, unless you have some way of hearing from them in their own words, those stories behind the analytics data, behind the numbers, you know, listening to the forum or doing those diary studies or doing that journey map, and then actually putting the the words, the emotions, the sentiment to the numbers that you're seeing in the analytics data. And I, I imagine that's how you're thinking about it. You're spot on. Basically, the data tells you what, what's going on, but it doesn't unpack the why or you know how or when they're really using uh, or doing certain things. What we do now is like we look at the data to get a sense of like the general behavioral data to see what people are doing. But we are fortunate enough that we can actually combine and track if so-and-so did this, we can then actually go and look up, you know, has so-and-so provided feedback in, you know, a survey of some way, shape, or form, and then see their new relationship between what they were saying and what they were doing. So that's why we're, you know, making more investments to correlate things and stuff like that. And that's often like something that all product managers want to do, especially at Alassian. Like we look at all, we get presented with so much data, but everyone then goes, why are they doing that? What's going on in their heads? And the next thing is like, okay, let's go and talk to that customer. So highly, highly recommend that to any product team to to be able to stay close to the customer, no matter what, even if your behavioral data gets super fancy and you have like anomaly detection and all these things that kind of recommend things to you, that's great, but take it with a grain of salt and don't substitute that for just the voice and, you know, speaking to people. Absolutely. Yeah. And and this is exactly the theme of the podcast and why we're having this conversation is just to tell stories like yours, product managers who are just really laser focused and it ends up delivering great features, you know, like that new redesign, you know, of that feature was a result of you really understanding that data, that qualitative data to see what's working and not working. And at a company, you know, like at Lassie, like you mentioned, you do just get so much data and so you have so many different sources. And so you mentioned the forums and you know, the microsurvey data and the interviews. How do you decide what to focus on just given the volume? And then what do you decide to turn into maybe a feature or a product or maybe a change versus something where maybe you're going to hold off or maybe not work on that at all? It all comes back to like our strategy Obviously, like in terms of Alaskan, we have so many different products, so many teams, but at the core of it, we have company strategies that we want to always align to because there's we have goals that we want to hit and, and that sort of thing. But also our mission is really to un- unleash the potential in teams, right? And so whatever we can do to advance that mission, whether it be you know within the year or within the next three years, is kind of up for grabs. 
But obviously, when it comes to looking at all these inputs, <laughs> I really wish it was a, a science sometimes. But it's this this blending of like inputs and trying to think about the different outcomes that we're trying to drive here. And so, <laughs> I think being a product manager is so. It's an interesting role because you're going to be at the heart of the sales team coming to you, saying, "Hey, my big customer that I'm trying to close wants this thing. Otherwise, they won't sign with us." And then you'll have the support team saying, "We've got like this sort of stuff coming through, and we need to address this because we're getting so many support tickets." And then other product teams um, or platform teams, as we call them, have different requirements as well. And so you get this swath of everything. At the end of the day, I think every team is a Every great product team has an outcome that they're trying to drive, and so you kind of have to look at that outcome and see which of those things will aid your outcome. And generally speaking, like we do quite a, we have a bottoms up and tops down sort of culture where the outcomes that product teams own are a mix of input from what we see on a day to day basis, but also paired with you know the three year, five year sort of vision for the company and our products. And so we kind of get to this happy medium of like. Here's what we're doing. Here's how it's going to aid the company's like number one objective or priority. And from there, we kind of it's much easier to sort of tease out what should be done and what should or what feedback we should action on and what we shouldn't. It's always a delicate balance. I think、um, a skill that I'm very much learning still is how to say no, right? How to say no well and ruthlessly prioritize, as people put it, because it can be so hard. You know, like you want to be able to do everything. I often say to my teams, it's not like we're never going to do it. It's just a sequencing act. Maybe this isn't the right time and place to do it. But I keep just like a personal notebook, really, of like ideas and things and things that are in my parking lot, if you will, and just make sure that I have the relevant data for each of those ideas or themes. And then at any given point, I can kind of pull that up and say, "Hey, actually, this did come up." Yeah, super interesting. I don't have a notebook myself. I use Apple Notes, but I can see how you know just having that down, just knowing what what's working, what not working with the customers, and having that handy would be super helpful. And we're running out of time here, so I've got one more question for you, Matt. We always end with this question on the podcast: What's your top piece of advice for other product managers who want to create products people love? Uh, I've said it so many times, but I, I think it's worth repeating. It's get in front of your customers. Don't let you know a support team. Don't let you know red tape. Don't let bureaucracy. Don't let any of that stuff get in your way. If there's any way, shape, or form that you can get in front of them, whether it's like through LinkedIn or through like some in-person event, just do it. I think it's so important to stay close to your customer, especially at as the company grows or you know as your product grows. I think it's natural that you start to lose some of that visibility because there's more process or more teams put in in between it, and it can be easy to go, "Hey, I've got so many things I need to do. I'm just going to rely on the support team, and you know what they say is true, and that's it." I think it's really important that a product manager unpacks that and spends time to prioritize that. And once you do, get your team involved. Like that's the second piece to it, right? Like don't be the hoarder of customer insight or the VOC, if you will. Because you're going to have to replay that anyway, and it's always easiest or more relatable if your team can hear it directly as well. So, yeah, just do whatever it takes to get in front of customers. And it's one of the most motivating things for the team as well is just hearing from 
your users, your customers in their own words, what's not working or working. I know our engineers at Userly, but certainly gets them motivated to make that change or ship that feature or fix that bug. Yeah, absolutely. I have teams always asking me, hey, what did people say today? What did people say yesterday or last week? And I'm like, Awesome, Matt. Thanks so much for joining today. I'm looking forward for, to just following you on Twitter and reading your blog posts. And and where can we find you online? Any recommendations where you're most active? I'm not a super active person. I would, <laughs> I'm trying to get better, but I think my Twitter is probably the best place to go. You can find me at uh, Mafew, which is M-A-H-H-F-E-W. But yeah, that's the best place to reach me. Awesome. I already gave it a follow. Everyone else should too. Follow Matt along in his journey as a building products customers love. Thanks, Matt, for joining us. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to request a guest or ask a question, email me at ryan at And if you need a tool that helps you get customer insights easier, faster, and more accurately, check out UserLeap. After my time managing products at other companies, I wanted a simpler way to do customer research, obtain insights, and use those insights to make the right product decisions. That's why I founded UserLeap. Our microsurveys help you get in-depth user insights in real time, understand the why behind your data, and ultimately ship the right thing for your customers. UserLeap is used by product managers at companies like Square, Adobe, and Dropbox, and it's super simple to get started. Try it free or learn more at userleap.com.